uh, why don't we stand for the reading of God's word, and then we'll pray for some. I'm going to break records this morning. I'm going to read verse 1 through 18. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was a compliment. or <laughs> I'm not above being mocked, you impious people. Jesus says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrite do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Surely, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray... You should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of to ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I know we're not in a Catholic church because I would hear that echoing back to me. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Father, um, of course, you've instructed Christ to teach us these things because they're common. Lord, it's our Our fallen hearts are prone to seek the attention of men, and uh, we we need instruction. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look over all of this, that you would help us to be um, to become better at evaluating our own motives or the things that we, and that you would correct us and uh, help us come to you without uh, our hearts being contaminated by all the distractions and uh, all the pitfalls, Lord. And Lord, um, as we've said, um, concerning all of our loved ones, Lord, so much hurt and pain, Jacob and Lauren, Lord, losing their baby, baby Enoch, and Lord, so many things, just coming home empty-handed from the hospital, having all of these dreams and expectations. And Lord, I'm thankful that you're closer to them than their breath, Lord, that you can touch them where no one else can, that you can comfort and strengthen. Lord, I thank you for the good report that they're trusting you. Lord, they, they don't need instruction as far as what your word says about babies that are lost. 
they just need your touch, Lord. So I pray that they would experience you walking with them very intimately. And Lord, for others who are hurting, for Lucy and Isaac and John and Carol and Judy, Lord, so many others, um, Lord, thank you for just being so good and loving on them. And we pray that you just continue to minister to their bodies, encourage their hearts, Lord, increase their faith, and help them even, Lord, to grow by the things they suffer. Lord, we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. Out of Matthew 5 into chapter 6. As, uh, you know, chapter 6 had some very uh, clear kind of ways that Jesus was communicating. Uh, He transitions into another form of communication now. Uh, In chapter 6, of course, he was addressing the the rabbis' um, errors in regard to interpretation of the Old Testament law. Uh, But here in chapter 6, he's confronting rabbinical examples, uh, their conduct. He's no longer correcting interpretation, but he's correcting application. He's no longer talking to the people about the things that they heard the rabbis say, but what they've seen the rabbis do that is so disturbing. Before, Jesus would say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. But here in chapter 6, Jesus is saying, do not do as they do, as they're doing, but instead do this. You shall not be like them, but you shall be like this. Now, of course, if there were Pharisees present during the delivery of chapter 5, of course, their ability to interpret the scriptures was being challenged. But if they're present for chapter 6, it's their motives that would have been challenged. And all of it is quite insulting to them. If they're not going to receive the rebuke as it is, they will just be hurt. Because chapter 5 is about challenging their exegetical um, uh, competency. But here... Jesus is addressing their character. And uh, so they're really getting it, aren't they? I think it's one thing to say that someone has fallen short in the understanding of a text of Scripture. It's altogether different to call them an attention-seeking hypocrite, as Jesus does here in the text. So what Jesus is doing is he's addressing the Pharisaical heart and uh, the temptation that we might have as Jesus goes through this instruction is to think that we're safe from having that heart. You're not, okay? I'm not. And that's how Jesus begins. He says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, of course, to take heed means to beware. Jesus begins with a warning. Okay? It's not just something that he's not just telling them about what the Pharisees do and what their motives are. He's saying to us, You need to be on the lookout for yourself. You need to be ever suspect of what may happen in your own heart, especially in the context of piety. Okay, of of here in this particular section, it has to do with alms. Jesus, of course, would agree that doing charitable deeds, it's good, it's virtuous, and there's no danger in doing them when the motive for doing it is right. Now, we often like to talk about pure motives, I'm not sure that it's ever safe to talk about humans having pure motives. I think we could potentially have the right motive, okay? Uh, I'm just not sure about pure. Uh, Paul said that I know that in me, uh, Romans 7, 18, nothing good dwells. So dwelling with us and all of our motives, all that we do, is just, just enough contamination. That, uh, and, and that justifies the warning, doesn't it, from Jesus? There's, there's, that's there, and uh, we should be on the lookout for it. 
Scripture tells us that the, the, every thought, every intent of man's heart uh, has problems. Okay? Genesis, what is it, 6 and Genesis chapter 9. So it's probably best to say that things should be done with a proper motive, <laughs> or close as we can motive to what it ought to be. What do you guys think about that, some of you? I'm on target. Yeah. You know yourself well. That's good. I, uh, I think probably, how many guys know who Gail Irwin is? He's a man, by the way. Uh, I don't even know if Gail is still alive, actually. He's an old Calvary Chapel pastor. He wrote uh, books, a series of books called The Jesus Style, uh, the, the Servant Quarters, things like that. I think it was him and probably Ch- Pastor Chuck Smith that, that helped me really take a good look at myself when it came to um, why I'm doing what I do in ministry and uh, being suspect that there might be something tangled up in what I'm doing. Uh, looking, you know, sort of behind my back to see if people are watching uh, or maybe even not looking to see it but maybe hoping for it. Uh, just always being suspect of, of my old man of the flesh trying to, uh, you know, come to the surface and be noticed for something, to be recognized. And essentially what happens in all of that is you end up intercepting or robbing God of glory that he's receiving for himself. We need to be careful. Jesus' warning has everything to do with motives. If you're doing something charitable because you want to be seen, you've done it for your own sake rather than for the ones who even receive the alms. It's crazy. This thing in us that wants to be God, it's not good. And so God, or Jesus, who is the God-man, says that, or would agree, I think, that you may well, in your act of almsgiving, benefit the recipient, but on your part, you've contaminated your giving, not the gift, I would say, but the act of giving, and any reward that you might have received from God is completely forfeited, because anything done in the name of God must be done for the glory of God and not for self. So in this instance, God, I believe, would bless the recipient, but of course, as Jesus says, there's just no reward in it to the giver. Whatever compliment you received, whatever attention you got, that's the extent of your reward. Jesus says, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you. Bring no trumpets to church with you, okay? (laughs) He says, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, here, Jesus, uh, in this chapter, he doesn't actually mention the Pharisees. But when we get to Matthew chapter 23, Jesus clarifies all that he's talking about here in the text. He has the Pharisees in mind. If they're in the audience, they know exactly who he's talking about. Okay? He's talking about them, because they were the ones that would make a, sh- a big show of what they were going to do for the poor. Okay? Uh, they would get everyone's attention so that everyone could stop what they're doing so that they could witness this great act of piety, this charity, which they did for the sole purpose of, one commentator says, of harvesting the praises of them. Go out into the people with his swather and just harvest their praise. They may not actually engage with people. They just may eavesdrop so that they can hear people talk about them. All that was done was to gain respect, to hear their compliments, to bathe in admiration. How sick that nothing in their heart was truly for the poor themselves, but only to hear what people would say, only to be honored by men. So Jesus calls them hypocrites. Now, that is not a word 
in modern English that we would use of that behavior, probably. For part of the reason is, is because Jesus doesn't use it the way that we use it today. He used it the way that the first century Jew understood. The word was used by the Jews to describe those who would pretend to be good in order to conceal their wickedness. That's what he means. So he is calling them wicked, calling them wicked. And Jesus, as we see him use this word, he always reserved it for the worst kind of people. He used it for the Pharisees, which I think is quite dangerous. It's risky in his teaching because currently in the culture of Israel, the Pharisees were actually admired. These were the superheroes, okay? And, uh, and Paul, you know, he even knew that because in Philippians chapter 3, he says, if anyone has anything to boast about in the flesh, he says, I'm more so. And then he gives his resume as a former Pharisee. He was the poster child of Israel. He was, he was hand-selected by the greatest rabbi that ever lived, by Gamaliel, okay? He, if, I think I've said it before. If, if Israel was into making action figures, there would have been one of Paul, because he was a Pharisee, okay? But he was, a, he was chief among the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. But Jesus is, to this culture that admires them, he's calling them wicked, yeah? These men would use alms as a cloaking device. They would be charitable to hide what was really going on inside them. And in turn, they were enjoying only what God should enjoy. And so Jesus says the praises of men is their only reward, because God reward, he refuses to reward any kind of behavior that intercepts glory from So I think that's part of the warning, is that if you are so arrogant, so presumptuous to rob God of the glory that he should be receiving for an act of piety, that is really dangerous. God shares his glory with no one. And you know, if people would ignore them, they would have no motive to put themselves on display. I think the best way to test the genuine nature of someone's gift is to just withhold praise. And I think it's a good idea sometimes. If, uh, if we have someone in the church that is constantly in front of people, <laughs> a, a good test of their motives, a good test of their character is to withdraw praise. You see, if people failed to compliment the Pharisees, if, if they didn't make a big deal out of their acts of charity, <clears throat> they would have either stopped giving or they probably would have given a lot less, okay? Which would prove that it's all about them. What's in it for me, that's the real motive. No reward, no giving. But if you do it for temporary reward from men, there's no eternal reward. Now, I think for us today, at least maybe for Calvary Chapelites or um, you know, contemporary classical evangelical <clears throat> believers, the idea of someone you know, getting everyone's attention so that they could be seen you know, doing some spiritual thing, some benevolent thing, is probably unthinkable. I hope it's unthinkable for us. But it's probably not as uncommon as we think. I'll give you some examples. Um, my kids love when I have to comment on things. Uh, a popular Christian radio station interrupts its normal programs in order to recognize and report the various donors that gave to the radio station. I say something every single time. And guess where I quote? Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I, it just amazes me that they would go to the lengths they do to heap praises on these people for donations. It just, it's mind-boggling to me. There's no instruction to do such a thing in, in the scriptures. And there's, there's no uh, place for it. It's crazy. Yeah. Could you imagine the Pharisees, if they were alive today that would be their platform. I mean, they would just go crazy over that. 
you know, back in the day, they might be able to get the attention of 100 people or so. But to think of sending their praises over the airwaves to potential millions of people, what an opportunity. Also, for a couple thousand dollars, you can reserve your seat at certain mega churches right up front where you can experience the pastor's spittle. <laughs> if you pay the thousands, they'll put your name on a placard on the seat. Okay? That way you can ensure that you know, the wealthier people sit in favored positions and uh, the poor people can sit in the back out of your sight, I guess. I don't know what the motive for that is. People will actually wait to put their offering in the box to ensure that others are looking. We do that. Others will only serve in a position where they can be seen, and if they're not publicly praised enough for it, they will either cause a stink or they'll stop serving. You know, this whole thing of donor recognition, charitable reporting, it's, it's a common thing. It's even often required by donors lest they stop their giving, which is not giving. Where reciprocation is required, it is not a gift. And this kind of behavior, Jesus says, should not exist among you. Now, by saying that, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to uh, encourage people in their piety. I, I think that can be healthy. But you as the complementer, you as the one who encourages and blesses, you need to be careful as you do it. Because you might appeal to someone's flesh more than is necessary. So be modest in your admiration of people, in your encouragement. Amen? Don't heap too much praise. Uh, that can get out of hand. But you certainly don't want people to be discouraged in their thankless service. Jesus says, but <clears throat> when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand, make sure I get my left right, my left correct, do not let your left hand know that what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now by Using the word openly, I don't, mean that, I don't think he means publicly, because I think that would then just be a repeat of what was condemned before. But that God will actually reward you accordingly. Okay. So do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The idea is that if it were possible, he's saying that your, your alms should be so concealed, so secretive, that you could hide from your left hand what your right hand is doing. Our alms should be done maybe with sleight of hand, as it were. Nobody sees it. Nobody knows about it, perhaps. But for what purpose? He says, so that our Father who sees everything in secret, that he will reward. That's where real enjoyment comes from. When we do things in secret, we really do escape the snare that can come with being seen, being recognized. There's so many dangers in it. And, and also, for some of us, it's more of a danger than for others. Some people, I, I don't know if it's a personality thing, or um, I don't know what it is. I don't know what's wrong with us. I mean, I know the core issue, but how it's manifested in different people is really a trip. But for some of us, uh, I think we know perhaps that we're prone to that, and it would probably be healthy for us to take more of a backseat, behind-the-scenes kind of ministry uh, so that we can grow in that to be appreciated by God before we give ourselves to any kind of public service that is in the, the eyes of people. Because you want to protect yourself, okay? You want to hear the praises of God and not the praises of man. You know, as you, I'm sure all of you are aware, as we look you know, through the scriptures, we look at the history of man, the pra praises, when a man is praised, it does something icky to him. It, it just, you know, he wasn't, he's not God. He wasn't created to receive that. He wasn't created to be exalted. So instead of complimenting his existence, it just corrupts him. And it makes him into a monster. But God <clears throat> is worthy of worship, and it just exalts him. 
okay? And uh, it's, it's a good, it's healthy thing. But for man, it's just bad news. And Jesus goes on to this next issue of piety. He says, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. Could you imagine such a thing? That they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their rewards. Make a big show of their almsgiving, and they parade their prayers before the people. You just imagine witnessing that. Every once in a while, they'd have to open their eyes just to make sure they still had an audience. Yeah, we're still watching. So today, we'd be videoing it. Mom, you won't believe what's happening right now. <laughs> yeah. But again, the reward is just recognition. That's it. From but you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. How spiritual, how pious do you suppose Pharisees would be if they had no audience to applaud them? How pious would you be? How pious would I be? Do you, do you hunger? Do you need an audience always to affirm you? Or is the Father's audience enough? <clears throat> I have to tell you, because preaching is strange business. It is. I mean, I have all these people that I'm, I'm, that I'm either preparing for you as my audience, or I'm preparing for Christ as my audience. Am I, am I, am I pleasing people or am I pleasing Christ? And my flesh is always pulled to please people. But then the Lord has a good way of shaking me up and saying, don't you dare do that. You teach the text and you let it lie. And, but we're, because we're made of garbage, we always fight with this. Do we need an audience? Okay. Would I continue preaching only if people applauded me? Or would I preach to the last seat? Would I preach to the seats that are full no matter what? It's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question. Jesus says, just as with giving alms, we should set aside a time for secret prayer where we, we consecrate that time to meet with the Lord so that it's not contaminated by anything, not the admiration of people, not the distraction of people. And if you guys, if you have a habit of, of private prayer, <clears throat> you know that it does have a kind of a cathartic effect. It is more intimate. It is what we would say blessed just meeting privately with the Father for prayer and just waiting on Him, okay? Not worrying about what anybody thinks, what anybody hears. Besides, some of you don't like praying publicly anyway. <clears throat> Maybe you should be the one praying more publicly. Come to that later. And people who love to be heard should just shut up and go pray in their closet. Can I say shut up from the pulpit? <laughs> All right. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many Words. At this point, Jesus gives the Pharisees a break and he turns to the pagan to address a practice that was among them when they prayed. Okay? So Jesus is essentially saying, do not behave like the pagans by treating our God as if he were a pagan deity, an idol. Okay? The pagans thought that their gods would only listen to them if they passionately and repetitively made their petitions loudly. Okay? They thought that... that that it would cause their gods to grow weary of their prayers and then just finally grant them because just so you'll be quiet, okay? And the pagan did that because they knew that their gods did not love them. They didn't have a father as we do, okay? They had a deity that, that didn't care for them, okay? They weren't interested in their needs or their affairs. The only time the, the pagan gods got involved in the affairs of the people is, is when 
it was to some advantage of their own, okay, when they could capitalize on it. And uh, <clears throat> to the pagan, a, a god of love was a foreign idea. Uh, even the ancient philosophers would say that the, the gods of the pagans are gods, they're villains. <laughs> they're selfish, capricious, they're conniving, they're sensual, vindictive. They said our gods are immoral. They're more, more immoral than we are. And for a Greek to say that, that's a big deal, okay? Yeah, ancient Greek, I'm not talking about. And so the pagans, they did not believe that their gods would respond out of love for the worshiper. So the worshiper had to really appeal to the vanity of their God. But the God of the Bible reveals himself to us as a father who is tender. He's loving, he's interested. And so he's not to be approached, he's not to be treated as if he were one of these pagan deities who is vain and needs to be puffed up by the worshiper. And our father does not grow weary of his children coming to him. Jesus says, therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Now, the problem is people ask the wrong question about this text. They say, hey, if God knows in advance what I need, why should I even pray? I don't know, maybe because you love him. It's such a strange question. You see, not only is our father loving and interested, he's been aware of our needs before we came to him in prayer. The word to know in the Greek, uh, it's a word that means to see, not simply to know. It means to see with perception, with understanding. He sees with knowledge. You see, our Father has had a watchful eye on us, our affairs, and overseeing what's been happening. And so he anticipates our petition. Because of his involvement in our lives, he knows what our needs are. It's not simply a statement regarding his foreknowledge. It's not what the word means, though the tense of the word speaks of him working beforehand. Here, it has to do with God's attentiveness to our needs as a father does to his children. All of you parents understand this, like a parent who watches their children play outside from the window, okay? Because the parent watches, he knows what the child needs when they call out to him. He was watching, she was watching when the child skinned their knee, so they knew what they wanted when they came crying. They saw the child on their tiptoes reaching for an apple that they could not reach, and so when they hear the child's voice calling their name, they know what the child wants. The parent witnessed the quarrel between siblings. He knows because he's watching with interest over the affairs of his children. He's not like the pagan deity who is uncaring and uninterested. He's not indifferent to the needs of the worshiper. As A.W. Tozer says, our father waits to be wanted. He's eager to hear from us. He stands watch over us. He's waiting at the door for us to come running and he's holding his arms out with a shining countenance. I love that because remember Paul says that our God is the happy God, 1 Timothy 1.11. The Greek word for happy is translated as blessed, but the word makarios means happy. He is the happy God, okay? God does not greet his little children with his hands on his hips with a grouchy face, okay? He's welcoming. That's, that's the sense that Jesus gives here. He knows what we need before we ask, because he's intimately involved in the affairs of his kids, okay? How many of you parents often know what your, your kids know before they ask, just because you've been attentive? And they come running to you, and they're just about to say something, and you just hand them whatever it is you know they want, and they just look at you like you're amazing, because <laughs> you've been paying attention, yeah. We're not to pray for show, not for the praise of men, and nor should we treat God like a pagan deity. So God, or not God, but Jesus gives us instructions on how we ought to pray. Now, 
What I want to do is because Jesus is talking about all these issues of piety, he kind of takes a parenthetical break here to talk about how we ought to pray. I'm going to go over it, but not exegetically. I'm going to finish the issue of fasting. Next Sunday, we're going to go over the, this outline of prayer. Is that okay? Is that totally unorthodox? It's too bad because I'm going to do it next Sunday. Okay. All right. Jesus says, <clears throat> in this manner, therefore, pray. In this manner. So first, Jesus is not teaching his disciples to pray these exact words. Otherwise, we would see Jesus and the apostles praying these exact words in the narrative of Scripture, and we never do. We never do. Why? Because Jesus did not say, pray these words. He said, pray in this manner. The ESV renders it, pray then like this. Okay? These instructions give us the elements of things that ought to be in our prayers, not the exact words of our prayers. Okay? Neither was it meant to be a liturgical formula recited in our church services. Now, by saying that, I'm not getting down on liturgical forms per se. Uh, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with them. I'm just pointing out that there's no hint of liturgical prescription in Jesus' words. Does anybody see it in the text? No, it's, it's not in the text, okay? There's no, actually no prescription or instruction of liturgy in the New Testament. Uh, the church actually invented liturgies to kind of create order and structure in the service of the church. Okay, now, I, I'm not a super big fan of liturgies. Um, I know that some churches function well with them. If, it's, if it serves as a blessing to the people and it honors God, I say go for it. Uh, if it distracts from the word and from worship and true repentance and things, it needs to go. Okay, it needs to go. But if you want liturgies, fine. I'm just not a liturgical kind of guy. Okay. Also, Jesus' instructions here were certainly not meant to be memorized and recited over and over and over and over again as some do, okay? Uh, it cannot be for repetition because didn't Jesus just finish telling his disciples, don't be like the pagan in their vain repetitions, okay? This is not supposed to be just something that we, we spatter off uh, in, a, in a meaningless way. It should not be prescribed in such a way. Jesus is uh, giving us things that the necessary elements that should be in our regular prayers. But it's certainly not exhaustive in the list that he gives here because we find Jesus praying in, in uh, John 17 and he doesn't abide by this at all, hardly. Okay? So this can't be exhaustive in any way. Uh, when we look at the introductions to Paul's letters, he prays for a number of things not found in the instruction here. Okay? Jesus is saying that these are things that we should, in our prayers, give attention to. So what are the essential elements of prayer here? He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one or from evil. Okay. So Jesus begins to whom our prayers should be addressed. He says, our Father. I love the intimate nature of that. It's not just simply our God. He said, don't treat my Father like a pagan deity. He's our Father. He cares for us. He's like a daddy. And then he addresses our petitions, that God's name would be hallowed, that it would be sanctified, that it would be sacred. Verse 9, that his kingdom and will would be done on earth as it is currently in heaven. Verse 10, 
And then our daily bread, that's our provisions. And I wonder, that's verse 11, does this imply that this should be something of morning prayer? Because you don't want to pray for your provisions at the end of the day. But give us this day our daily bread. Maybe it's a, a morning thing is implied there. And then this requesting of forgiveness of our debts on condition of us forgiving others, verse 12. And then to keep us away from temptation and evil, verse 13. So that's pretty basic, isn't it? There's a lot that can be uh, said about those things, but it's pretty basic. Now, just a real quick comment on verse 13, and then we'll come back to the whole prayer next Sunday. Verse 13 can be a troublesome verse to, to people. At first glance, it gives the impression that God would, would, in fact, lead us into temptation if we did not plead with him otherwise. I hope nobody thinks that. Uh, James makes it very clear that God does not do that. He says, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Nor does he tempt anyone. In, in the original language of Matthew 6, 13, we have what's called a permissive imperative. And Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says, the idea is then, do not allow us to be led into temptation. So translations can be from one language to another. It, it causes, it creates challenges. Now, rendering it the way that Robertson does, do not allow us to be led into temptation, is actually consistent with what Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke twenty-two forty. he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's consistent, okay? So there should be no fear of God leading us into being tempted to sin, to be tempted by evil, because in doing that, he'd have to violate his character. Now, as to the doxology, at the end of verse 13, which says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, I'll address that next week when we come back to the prayer. Let's get back to another issue of piety. He says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. How do you guys feel about that? Some great faces out there. All kinds of contortions. Yeah. This comment probably looks back to verse 12, where in our prayers, Jesus says, we're to seek God's forgiveness, remembering that we have the responsibility to forgive others. But Jesus clarifies at this point that there's actually a real contingency, a real contingency. Now, I've heard many pastors preach on this text. And they love to insert qualifiers and exceptions into the passage. I don't dare do that, by the way. Okay, it's not healthy to add words to Jesus. Okay, the text itself presents no obscurities, does it? There's nothing obscure about this text. The condition is absolutely real. Jesus did not waste his words when he said this. And Jesus said this out of his omniscience. He knows that some terrible and horrifying things have been committed against the people that he's talking to right now. But he also knows that nothing compares to the horrors that have been committed against his father. And nothing compares to the horrors that he's about to face at Calvary as an innocent man by wretched people. Okay? And yet he demands that we forgive because his father forgives everyone freely who comes to him through repentance and genuine faith. Now, I know that God grants unusual grace to those who desire to obey him by forgiving those that have injured them. Unusual grace, okay? especially in the worst kind of things. We know this from many stories of history. 
Many of you have read The Hiding Place from Cory Temboom. God gave a special grace to Cory and Betsy to forgive Nazis. And then, of course, Cory went on to preach, to teach churches about her experience in the death camp and how she'd come to a place of forgiveness. And some of you know that she was actually later confronted by one of the death camp guards who tested the genuineness of her forgiveness. You guys, God grants unusual grace to forgive. Okay, We must forgive. But Jesus says, if you are quite unwilling to do so, he says, do not expect my father to forgive. He will not. He will not. Let's move on. <clears throat> the last issue here. He says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their <clears throat> reward. Hypocrites can do nothing in secret. Everything must be broadcast. Could you imagine the pathetic lifestyle of the Pharisee? When they give alms, when they pray, when they fast, everything they do in spiritual discipline was for public display. It had to be out in front of everyone, going out of their way to show the sacrifices they make in their service to the Lord. They long to hear people say, just look how miserable they are for the Lord's sake. And that was a compliment, I guess. Now, it's interesting, you know, the Pharisees fasted um, seasonally twice a week, even though the law only commands one fast a year. That's during Yom Kippur. That's it for the Jews. They were just prescribed one fast a year. But the Pharisees decided, <clears throat> as public overachievers, that they would fast twice a week between Passover, the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of Pentecost, and then between the Feast of Tabernacles to um, Hanukkah. And it's funny, Hanukkah is not even prescribed in the law of Moses either. But Jesus celebrated Hanukkah in John 10, but it's not prescribed in God's word. So these guys were major overachievers in a public setting, okay? And just imagine, you know, weeks at a time, weeks at a time, presenting this show to people. I can't imagine how exhausting that would be. But apparently just being fed by the compliments and the veneration of the people. And the interesting thing is we said, you know, the great test for someone's piety is to just stop giving them compliments. The more that Jesus preaches through his ministry in the next couple uh, years is he begins, the people begin to get it. Their eyes are opening up and uh, what happens is he ends up stealing the show from the Pharisees. And they stop giving the Pharisees all this attention that they had and then the Pharisees turn on the people. They become the enemy of the people, threatening them, cursing them, and everything else. All of their piety just goes to nothing. Crazy stuff. Jesus says, but when you fast, anoint your head, that is with oil, we don't do that much anymore, and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So in all three of these areas, in almsgiving, in prayer, in <clears throat> fasting, Jesus is just saying, be aware of yourself and conceal your piety. Be on your guard. Now notice that Jesus doesn't condemn the practice of fasting more than the law required. He just condemns the pretense of piety. He doesn't condemn fasting more than what is prescribed. You know, fasting for the right reasons, you guys, it's a good spiritual discipline. Okay? I encourage people to fast, especially when... You know, big decisions need to be made 
or when praying for those who are seriously ill, people that are wayward in their faith or their marriage is suffering. Okay? I think that desperate times call for desperate measures. And if you're like me, nothing says desperate like going without food or desperate measures rather. Okay. This body can eat, trust me, <laughs> and likes to. Yeah, I think it's good to abstain from food for a few days just in order to seek God's face, to give him your attention. And I know that right now it's, it's popular. We have like um, intermittent fasting, um, and I don't have a problem with it. But if you can intermittent fast for your physique, for public display, you can fast for the sake of others. Amen? <clears throat> but when you do... The rest of us do not need to know how dedicated you are and how miserable you are, okay? Take a bath, wash your face, look presentable, and um, it'll be just fine. And the truth is, you know, if I, if, if, if I find out you're fasting and you're demonstrating false piety in it, I'm going to have all kinds of fun with it because I'm going to investigate and find out what your favorite food is, and I'm going to make sure that the room is filled with the aroma, and I'm just going to pound it right in front of you, and you're going to see this countenance shine as I enjoy your favorite food, okay? Uh, don't come on display here. <laughs> you just make it fun for the rest of us. So let's, let's bring this to a conclusion. Ask a few questions. It's not Bible trivia. Well, kind of, it is. Is Jesus condemning public piety? Is Jesus condemning public piety? Is it wrong for others to know about our benevolent giving? Is it wrong to pray publicly? Sure hope not. Is it wrong to inform others that you're fasting? If it is, we have serious contradictions in both Jesus' teaching and Jesus' example, as well as the apostles' teaching and their example. Because as we go through the, the four Gospels, as far as Jesus' example is concerned, we see him doing public acts of benevolence okay, for three and a half years, healing the sick, the blind, and the lame. There's an interesting passage that just before Judas left to betray Jesus, the other disciples assumed that he was going to give alms to the poor. That must have been a common practice of Jesus. Otherwise, there would be no assumption. So the disciples knew that Jesus gave alms. So there was a public knowledge about that. Jesus prayed publicly on a number of occasions, and the disciples were aware of it, that Jesus often went without food so that he could minister to the crowds. So it was public. They knew that he was giving alms publicly, that he was praying publicly, and that he was fasting. Okay? The apostles did these same, thing, these same things publicly also. They were doing benevolent ministry, just as Jesus did. Paul prayed publicly with the Ephesian elders on the beach. I think we should all have a, a beach prayer ministry. Paul had others fasting together with him in Antioch, not in secrecy. We find Jesus and the apostles doing all of these things. We also find Jesus teaching his disciples to do these things publicly. He commands it in the same sermon. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. How do we reconcile all of this? It's all in the motive, isn't it? It's all in the motive. Here the motive is to have others glorify our Father in heaven for our good works. But in the case of the hypocrite, all of their piety was on display to be seen by men and to be ad admired by them. So Jesus isn't condemning public piety. Otherwise, we couldn't gather here for public worship, for public prayer, for fellowship, all of these spiritual disciplines that we're commanded to do publicly. Jesus is warning about false motives, about the pitfalls that can ensnare us in the act of piety and 
spiritual discipline, okay? It's not to be pontificated. So you love that word, to pontificate, to strut your piety in front of people. The truth is discretion should always be practiced when we give alms. It should always be practiced when we pray and when we fast. It should always be in the habit of self-examination. And if you think that your own examination is not so good, ask someone else. And if you don't trust what other people would say about you, then ask the Lord. Didn't, G- or didn't uh, David say that? Search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me. We should be doing that. Yeah. If you think your motive <clears throat> is selfish or self-seeking, then abstain for the moment. Confess to Christ and then repent. If you think that people are watching you and they would be tempted to admire you in the wrong way, just abstain and then do the thing in secrecy. Okay? Use discretion about yourself. Use discretion about other people. But I think the greatest danger is not being suspect of yourself. Okay? Be watchful. Be watchful. All right, go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. <clears throat> Let you guys fellowship. Not bad. We did 18 verses. Yeah. Yeah, don't clap though because <laughs> it could be bad for me. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, um, it's no wonder you said that you did not entrust yourself to men because you know what's in them. Ugh. Lord, we, everything about us is contaminated with sin. We've got challenges, Lord, and I just pray that by your Spirit that you would confront us and address us as we really are and that you might communicate to us, Lord, in your grace where we have strayed in our motives and the purpose for which we do things. And I pray that you'd help us to see clearly that we might be able to offer anything to you in piety that is wholesome and glorifying to you, Lord, that is beneficial to people. I pray that you would protect our hearts when people do praise us, when they admire us for anything that we might do for your glory. Help it not to go to our heads, Lord, uh, to further contaminate things we might do in the future. Just guard our hearts, we pray, and help us to walk before you in a way that is upright and well-pleasing to you. And um, yeah, grant us your grace, Lord. Lord, I thank you for my church family. I thank you that they come and hear the word. And I pray that you'd give them the courage, the strength, Lord, to walk it out, to live for you. So bless them this week.